This is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, and uh, we're firmly in the green season. Just, just to remind you, last year and the year before, I said at practically every sermon in the Green Sundays that the Green Sundays are about discipleship, its nature, cost, and the ways and the means. But this week, uh, and last week, I think, and the week before, I mentioned uh, Vicki Black, a deacon from Iowa, who wrote a book called Welcome to the Church Year. And in that book, she says that the Green Sundays are about our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another through our prayers, the sacraments, and life in the body of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the church and its mission. And I mention this because my decision this week was to preach on all three readings, because they're all good, and they're all important, and uh, actually they have something to do with all of those things, but also as we're going into the summer and thinking about the purpose of maybe a little bit more leisurely time, although that may not be true anymore these days, but uh, it was usually thought of as, as leisure. You know, we get the word leisure in English from the Latin word, from the Greek word scole, and the Latin word scola, which means school. So leisure isn't just kicking back Although you've heard me say this before, everybody needs every day to do absolutely nothing for at least 20 minutes. It's very, this is so easy to say, isn't it? <laughs> and very hard to do. And uh, no matter how much we say otherwise, the, the Puritan influences on our culture are uh, long and abiding, you know. H.L. Mencken characterized a Puritan as somebody who has the sneaking suspicion that somebody, somewhere, is enjoying themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so summer is sort of a time when we at least think about it. But in a more serious way, certainly the reading from First Kings is a bit about how this process works and why it's important. We actually, in this reading, go back a few chapters from what we read last week about Naboth's vineyard and about Elijah. This is uh, Elijah's preparation, actually, for being ready now to come to Naboth. Uh, he is, is um, experiencing a classical New Old Testament version of what in our time we would call burnout. Jezebel and Ahab have gone after him and he's running away from them. And the reason they've gone after him is that Jezebel uh, is from a culture that worship a god called Baal. And she has brought in a number of the priests of Baal to uh, participate in the cult of Baal, and Elijah and some of his cohorts have killed them all. Another unhappy story in the Old Testament, but true to Elijah's belief that uh, Israel has been, in fact, uh, compromised by their presence. So they've gone after him, and he's now run away 
and he wants to die. And he says he's been faithful all this time, but he's, he's through. So he goes to sleep under a mustard tree, and an angel wakes him up and says, you need to eat. And there's some cake and some water there, and he eats it, and he goes back to sleep, and the angel wakes him up again, and he said, you need to eat some more because you have a journey to make. So he gets up, eats, and he goes on the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. I began my ministry with a priest who, when he was invited over to a parishioner's house for dinner, if he liked the dinner, he would say to them, I shall rise and go on the strength of this food 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> he was also capable of, of wondering in, the, in parish life whether there may be some difficulty about something, and he'd say, David, it's now a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. So Elijah goes to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. These stories, by the way, in all probability were written during the Babylonian exile because the people who were taken away in the Babylonian exile uh, forgot how they got there from here from there. And so many of the people who were part of that community began to write down the stories of the kings the stories of the prophets of Samuel, King David, King Solomon, all of those things now begin to be written down in written form, not merely part of the oral tradition. So Elijah goes to Mount Horeb, and there he has an epiphany. He experiences the presence of God, and we have cataclysmic events that normally are associated with the deity. We have an earthquake, we have fire, we have wind. And as it turns out, God is not present in any of those things. But as it says in the New Revised Standard Translation, New Revised Version, it said, God is present in the sheer silence. And so Elijah comes out of the cave, throws his scarf around him and a voice speaks to him in the silence. I think this reading is here because it has something to do with retreat and refreshment, with how we hear the voice of God, what retreat and refreshment is for, and how we listen for the still small voice that all of us hear that we know is not our own. You know, just about everybody has had that happen to them in their life at least once, in some form. And so by virtue of that, uh, Elijah is urged and commanded by God to go back into the fray. Remember I said to you a few weeks ago that when uh, Houston Smith was asked by Bill Moyers in that series on the great religions of the world, how would you know whether or not you're making any spiritual progress of any kind if you practice with intention any of the great faith traditions of the world that they've talked about? And he said the invariable test, Houston Smith, 
the invariable test of whether there's been any spiritual progress made is whether or not we see in the person the willingness to extend and an increase in their generosity. And he interprets this generosity very broadly. It doesn't merely mean with your substance. It means generosity with regard to your relational life with others, your willingness to extend and to fulfill your vocation. And in Elijah's case, it was his prophetic ministry that he needed to continue and to be an agent of God's will for Israel. And so he goes back. Any belief that there has been spiritual progress made because you have in some way been enlightened is bogus, Dr. Smith says. And I tend to agree with him, you know? There's just a whole lot of spirituality around these days, isn't there? <laughs> right? A lot of spirituality. And so by virtue of that, uh, people can fool themselves and we've said this before, the power of deception in the human person is infinite. So Elijah goes back, and we heard about Naboth's vineyard, and there are going to be some other things, and then he's going to be taken up into heaven on a chariot, and his successor, Elisha, is going to show up in this cycle of readings as we get into 2 Kings. But I guess the lesson one from 1 Kings today is listen for the still small voice that you know is not your own. Seek opportunities for retreat and refreshment. Listen in the sheer silence and know that it is to prepare you to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are right in front of you. I say practically every sermon, God has, uh, needs you as part of his plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. You count, you're important and you need to be able to rise to the occasion. I've said over the last two weeks that I was going to talk every time about Galatians, and last week I engaged in a rather tortuous explanation of justification by grace through faith, but today is easier because Paul is speaking about the way you and I appropriate and live justification, and how we understand that in terms of our community life and what the practical realities of justification are for the people of God and by extension for how we understand what kind of a world it is we want to live in. Paul today is speaking about the importance of baptism as the sacramental sign of justification, of being right-wise with God, of participation in Christ, which may be the more central Pauline theme in his theology and has now been something that is widely discussed in uh, academic circles about Pauline theology. Participation in Christ or being in Christ, being faithful in that regard. And so Episcopalians uh, are in a sacramental church and we believe that the, most, the two most important sacraments our holy baptism and the Eucharist. So baptism is your initiation into the body of Christ, the sacramental testimony of your justification. The Eucharist is the means by which you are sustained on a weekly basis to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of you. Now, Paul would be asked, so what are the consequences of your baptism? 
what are the consequences of being uh, participating in Christ in this sacramental way, being grafted into the, onto the body of Christ, being initiated into the people of God. And he would say what the practical consequences are is that we now have a community that is plural. And the distinctions that we have believed important in our life together, culturally, anthropologically, whatever way you want to describe, have now been uh, rendered meaningless because we are all one in Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, no male or free male, no slave or free. And some of you may say, yeah, but we're certainly not acting that way, are we? Well, no. Not all the time. But it is that knowledge of justification in the sacramental sense that produces the spark by which Christian people in every age realize the necessity to attempt to bring into proximity the spirit and the letter. And so when Paul speaks today about this kind of justification, you and I have a, a living testimony, a physical outward and visible sign that is a demonstration of that. Not a lot of abstruse reasoning about faith in Abraham. I was reading in uh, E.P. Sanders' book on Paul this week, and he said, you know, Paul was at pains to do this because of there, were, there were a lot of arguments going on in his day and age within his own religious constituency that required him to do this, and he felt the need. But when you cut through all of that, uh, it really means that he believes that when we are being in Christ, we do God's work, and when we're being in Christ, we're able now to put away the differences that we heretofore had thought were so important. In the reading from the Gospel, we have some relationship to Elijah in a funny sense, listening for the still small voice, uh, rising to the occasion to meet the challenges and the opportunities. So here's some biblical New Testament stuff. Uh, Luke is, uh, and Matthew uh, were written after the earliest of the synoptic gospels, Mark's gospel. And both of them had a copy of Mark to write their gospel. And in Mark's gospel, we have the story of the Gerasene demoniac. And Jesus also heals him in that story. But Mark has that story there for a particular reason uh, that is different from Luke. Luke will use it for a different purpose. Mark's purpose was that he wished to, put, to, to say in this parable that Jesus has dominion over the unseen world. So all the spirits all the demons, all the invisible forces that are arrayed in our world that you and I find greater difficulty with than they did in the ancient Near East are in some way uh, know who Jesus is. And they're the ones who in Mark's gospel identify Jesus by his messianic titles and also as the son of God. No one else does. And that is mostly true in the other gospel witnesses. So 
the Gerasene demoniac is healed, and it is for the purpose of demonstrating that. Mark wants to make sure that we know that Jesus is control in control of the unseen world. We would call the spiritual world. But Luke has another idea in mind. He believes this kind of healing and this kind of removal of demons is for the purpose of fostering Christian discipleship and mission. And so the Gerasene demoniac comes and is healed by Jesus. He's not called Legion in this story. He's just the Gerasene demoniac. And the people who have known him in the past uh, now come and see him after he's healed, as it says, clothed and in his right mind. Now, there's a number of things that may be useful for the preacher in this sort of underneath. One is, is that most of us, whether we admit it or not, become uh, content with our own personal demons. Either we have learned how to work with them, or we find them in some way comforting because, you know, the devil you know is better than, you know, right? So we can use them as the ways and the means to, to uh, say this is how we must uh, understand and think or behave. <coughs> This is demonstrated in this gospel by the uh, Gerasene demoniac saying to Jesus, I want to come with you. Take me with you. I want you with me. And Jesus says, you, you need to go to back home. You need to go home and you need to tell people what it is that you've experienced. Now, Luke is a Gentile. And in this story, Jesus gets in the boat and he goes across the water to where he's, to, to the Gerasenes, who are Gentiles. So it is for Luke the anticipation of the Gentile mission. The Gentile mission doesn't happen really in Jesus' own earthly ministry. His ministry is mainly to Jews and in some places in the Gospels, he says so to the infinite chagrin of a lot of the Gospel writers who report it faithfully, but it does require some explaining, you know. But Luke, who is persuaded because he is a Gentile that this message is for all people and that in fact you can see it in Jesus' own preaching and teaching if you look for it carefully, that this is an example of how people who now have received the benefits of the mighty works of Jesus Christ go back and commend to them, their, to others, their greatest place of safety and assurance. Now we've talked about what that means to commend to others your greatest place of safety and assurance. And most Episcopalians shrink from any idea of evangelizing and God forbid soul winning, yikes. I'm not much pleased with that kind of vocabulary myself. But I expect that what is meant here is what I say to you often, and that is, is that, you know, the best missionary work is uh, reflecting back to others the best and the highest of your own humanity. If you're made in God's image and you come to see that and really believe it about yourself, 
uh, at your best, you become someone who someone will say to someday, how do I get what you have? We may not have any religious conversation of any kind, but it is a, an opportunity for you to commend to others the practical wisdom that you have learned about your living, where your spiritual center is, and to be able to explain with some clarity why you think this is important. Things that you've learned uh, out of the experience that the uh, chaplain at Harvard University uh, says is a good thing to do with other people, you know? So this is a story about the mission of the church. It isn't just about the casting out of demons. It is a story about uh, we learning not to be so uh, content with our own demons, you know? I've heard it characterized to me as the committee that lives rent-free in your head, <laughs> right? So when you begin to understand that uh, you don't have to, to uh, pay a lot of attention to that all the time, you know? I wish I could tell you that this is a once and for all process, but it's a process of inching along. And that's what sanctity is. Some, Ernst Trelch, who was a writer about church stuff, a German uh, sometime in the early part of the 19th century wrote a lot about different types of church, cult, sect, church. He said um, Anglican Christians um, are extremely good at sanctification. They're not good at conversion. And so I think the thing that we need to be concerned about is how uh, the converted spirit in some ways is now able to function at a higher level, a more mature level, and a more godly level. So this week, think about listening for the still small voice that you know is not your own. Uh, spend a little time uh, being quiet, doing nothing, maybe listening actively. Uh, Years ago, when I was at Christ Church Sausalito, I went on a cursio. And you need to know that I say without prejudice, my own instincts about cursio are not the greatest. But I went because I was invited to go, and the people that went on the cursio with me were some uh, very interesting people, and I went. And I remember the first night uh, we were there, at the Curcio on Lyon Street. One of the leaders of the Curcio told everybody, well, we're all gonna go to bed now or after this thing and there's no talking. What we call in the monastic life, greater silence until after breakfast tomorrow. You know, I'd been on retreats before and in months, so I thought, good, fine. I'm getting ready for bed, and I looked around, and there were a couple of guys there who had looks of absolute sheer terror on their faces. <laughs> the idea that they were not going to be able to talk for 10 hours was practically more than they could take. You know, I think we need to be sympathetic with people who don't like to be alone with their thoughts. It's not always easy for me. But sometimes God is present in the sheer silence. 
And in the Curcio, that was probably something that was part of the teaching that for people who had not experienced that before, that that is something that is uh, worth doing, you know? You don't have to decide to not talk forever, right? I've been on week-long silent retreats in my seminary. We had one every year. Everybody was a week-long in a silent retreat. And there does come a time when uh, you, you sort of starting to talk again becomes burdensome. So there's some things that uh, you learn about that. That's not a good thing to always dwell on either, but the fact is is that you can get used to the silence and it becomes a um, spiritually enriching thing. So think about that. Think about uh, how you are justified in Christ through your baptism. What a wonderful thing that is to remind yourself of, particularly since a lot of people were infants when they were baptized. And so we think about how that is part of how we understand the Christian life because it's the impetus for the um, movement toward inclusion that we feel is so important in our common life today. It's always been part of Christianity, but often neglected. And Paul today is speaking about the positive effects of uh, this sacramental life. And then finally, uh, learn to uh, deal with your demons in a way that is constructive so you can get back into the fray. Amen. Amen.